Ready to roll, so if you would um, open up to John 19. John 19 will only be in one place today, so that'll make it easy on your fingers. All right, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, okay? Would you bow with me? Father God, we do love you. We do thank you and praise you for your character, that you are a loving God, a personal God who cares about your people. Thank you for your holiness and your grace and your love, your mercy, your kindness, your long-suffering patience with us. We thank you, Lord, for all of your attributes, your faithfulness, and, and just we just lift you up and magnify you and thank you for sending your only begotten Son into this world to suffer the horrible things we have been looking at on our behalf to become sin for us, literally the curse of sin for us, and to take all that in our place because you do love us so much that you wanted us to spend eternity with you, to be able to praise you for attributes of grace and justice and holiness forever and ever and to see you face to face, to see our Lord Jesus one day face to face is the hope of all hopes, the thing that keeps us going when we encounter the the grief and the sadnesses of living in a sin-cursed world with death and, and with all the violence and crimes and hatred and everything that is in this world, we have that hope of one day being in your presence, fellowshipping with one another for all of eternity without sin. And we can't even begin to imagine the wonder and beauty of that kind of fellowship. We enjoy our fellowship with one another here, but without sin it will be so much more fantastic. May we never ever lose the wonder of it all, that we can have your presence abiding in us, and, and that we have eternity to look forward to. And that we can even have the abundant life here on, on earth now. That you have provided all we need to have that peace that passes all understanding. Even in troublesome circumstances. And even when we are, like Mila, just encountering grief and his grace. We can have a peace that passes understanding. Because we know that this isn't the end of the story. There is a hope beyond. A true hope. A sure hope. And Lord, now as we look again at what you encountered in that last trial as you stood before Pilate and all the humiliation and the injustice of it all, we pray that we will again see your sovereignty, Father, and, and Christ's glory and majesty and, and just hide your servant behind the words and the works and the, and the life of the Lord so he alone is magnified. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we are getting very close to the crucifixion and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we have just read last week, we read his final words prior to the moment when he lifts up his crossbeam and begins his walk to Golgotha. And interestingly, but certainly not by just mere, mere coincidence, what were his last words and actually his last word about? Sin! Right before he picked up his crossbeam and went to Calvary, his last words were about sin. Well, that is sure you know, divine providence, because why was he going to the cross? For your sin and my sin. Specifically, he spoke about the great sin of Pilate, who represented the Gentile world responsible for his death. And he spoke of the greater sin of Caiaphas, who represented the Jewish world responsible for his death. Jesus, remember, had responded to the proud Pilate, who had just boasted to him of his power to either release him or crucify him. And Pilate, uh, Jesus responded to that boast by telling Pilate that he could have no power at all, at all, zero, except it were given to him from where? From above, from his father. Yes, it is true that the combined Jewish and Gentile world put Jesus on the cross, as did you and I, because of our sins. But it was only because God allowed those representatives of mankind to do so. Right? We know that. It was his plan from eternity past that his son would come into this world to go to the cross in order to literally, as I said in my prayer, become sin for us. The curse of sin for us. 
so that through our faith in his finished redemptive work on our behalf, we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Wonderful exchange, isn't that? We give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Who could turn that down? Nonetheless, those responsible for the Lord's death, they are still held accountable for their sin. And the Lord said that the Jewish people, particularly Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin council were the greater sinners. That's what Jesus said. There are degrees of sin. There are going to be degrees of punishment in hell. Remember when he said it will be more tolerable for those citizens of of Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities, than it would be for the citizens of Galilee who lived in Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin? More tolerable. There will be degrees of sin, of punishment in hell. All sinners without Christ will go to hell, though. There are not, you know, different levels of heaven, as Mormons teach, and no hell at all. There are just different degrees of punishment in hell. But he said that the Jewish people, particularly Caiaphas, would be more responsible. Their sin was greater. Why is that? Well, it's because they had more light than anyone else. When the Apostle Paul, you know, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, spoke of the advantage of the Jewish people. He said that God, the reason they had an advantage is because God had committed to them the oracles of God. What does that speak of? The oracles of God? His words. They had the revelation of God. God had committed that to them. The the word of God. But in spite of having the very revelation of God himself, they rejected his son, their Christ. Their long-awaited Messiah King, the promised seed of the woman, way back to Genesis 3.15. And what did they do? They betrayed him into the hands of Pilate and the Gentiles to be killed. The principle is that the greater the privilege, the greater the condemnation when those privileges are not used properly. The Jewish leaders easily could have studied their Old Testament scriptures and known without a shadow of a doubt who Christ was. It was all there for them. But Pilate and the Roman soldiers, they didn't have that advantage, did they? And you know why they didn't have that advantage? It's because the Jews who were supposed to take the truth of God, Jehovah God, and the truth of his promised coming Savior to the rest of the world, weren't they? Isn't that why God chose them in the belly button of the earth? So that they could carry the truth of him to the whole world? The reason Pilate and the Romans didn't have the truth of the scripture is because the Jews were keeping it to themselves. They weren't doing their job as witnesses. They looked on, down their long, pious noses at anyone who wasn't Jewish. You know, they didn't like the Gentiles. Here God, you know, they wouldn't go to the Roman world, so God brought the Romans to them, right there in their land. All they had to do was be loving and kind and witness to them. And maybe, perhaps, Pilate would have known that Jesus was their promised Messiah, his Savior as well. But that's the reason he didn't have the advantage. And the Jewish people also had this advantage. They had Jesus living among them for the past three and a half years. He had, they had his ministry with them and among them. And all Pilate had was uh, secondhand reports about Jesus' ministry. So that was an advantage. And Pilate only would have heard, uh, you know, through rumors about Jesus. And when Pilate sentenced Jesus to death... It wasn't because of hatred. He didn't hate Jesus like the religious rulers hated him. He actually admired him, didn't he? He didn't put Jesus to death because of envy either. And they envied Jesus. The Jews did. The leaders. So his sin was less. He was guilty of sin because he put his self-interest above justice. So he was guilty of sin. But his sin was not as great as that of Caiaphas's and his crowd. Because they willfully against all that light that they had and the advantage of having Christ right there ministering to them and seeing him raise the dead and hearing his profound words, you know, scriptural, wonderful words, in spite of all that, they willfully led the Jewish people into demanding the death of their own Messiah. And you know, there is a very frightening and ominous truth in all of this for those of us today who live in the United States of America in the 21st century. Because more than any other people who have ever lived, we have more spiritual light, more spiritual helps than even the Jews back then. 
They didn't have the New Testament, did they? No, they didn't. We have it all. We have complete canonization of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Think of all the, the Bibles. Everybody in here has a Bible on your lap. Some people in other countries don't even have one page of Scripture. I know, from, for example, I have probably at least 40 Bibles in my home at home. My home at home. <laughs> probably, I'm sure many of you have more than one Bible, don't you? And we have access to great Bible commentaries. All you have to do is go a few blocks down to a Christian bookstore, loaded with all kinds of Christian material, helps. We have the advantage of, of good Bible-believing churches still around, um, getting fewer and far apart, but we have them. Um, we have the advantage of Christian radio on my way here. I was listening to BBN, Adrian Rogers, like I do, you know. We have, we have uh, online you can watch church services online now. What else have we got? Cassettes. Those of you that have old cars like me still have cassettes. <laughs> CDs and MP3s. <laughs> Every time we catch up with technology, it gets a little step ahead of us, doesn't it? Um, but we're going to work on MP3s, aren't we? Because the Lord didn't come. And she promised me if the Lord didn't come, we're going to do MP3s. So he isn't here yet. <laughs> um, but we have, we have absolutely no excuse and yet, how much of America walks in darkness? So, so, it's getting worse and worse, isn't it? And so much of America rejects the true Christ. Unfortunately, many even in churches and standing behind pulpits that call themselves Christian churches are rejecting the true Christ. You know, it says in Luke twelve forty eight, For unto whom so much, whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Now, speaking of those in churches, and uh, unfortunately, this is getting to be more the norm. Look at this article that I made a copy. One of the ladies in our Monday Bible study who lives in West End, like I do, sent this to me from a small paper that is um, published in West End. It's called the Seven Lakes Times. I don't think that's on your paper, is it? This comes from the Seven Lakes Times newspaper, and it was dated April 13th, just a couple Weeks ago, 2012, and uh, this 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 kind of stuff. This woman sent it to me in the Bible study, and I didn't. I got it in the mail, but I'm, unfortunately, I didn't read it till I was going to bed that night. I laid down on my bed, and I got out this article, and I started to read it, and I, I just, oh my goodness, my blood started boiling, and then I couldn't sleep all night. I was so upset about it. I, I shared it with my husband, and he couldn't sleep either. <laughs> so I thanked her yesterday. Thank you so much for sending me this. But um, and then I heard. A couple weeks ago, about another, I'll get to this in a minute, but just to show you this is going on. And I hope you're not in a church like this, because if you're in a church like this, get out, okay? Just get out. But there was another um, incident that happened in another local church near where I live, where a, a woman we know went to a um, service, a special Passion Week service. She doesn't go to that church, but she wanted to go and get a blessing at this church and hear this service that they were having. And she said that at the end of the service, the minister said... I do not understand why Jesus had to die. I don't understand. And I guess he picked up his Bible. If I get the story right, she was there. So, And he said, um, and I don't find any answers in this book. I don't know why he had to die, and I can't find any answers in this book. And she said he slammed the Bible down in his pulpit, turned and walked away, left. I feel sorry for him, in a way. You know what's happening is that People with some degree of faith go off to these seminaries where they learn that you can't really trust the Bible. You know, it isn't the inspired word of God. And those are just Paul's opinion. And John didn't write the book of John. Matthew didn't write the book of Matthew. Did you know that? That's what they'll teach you. Mark didn't write Mark. And Luke didn't write Luke. And Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. And then they'll go on from there and they'll say, Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. There were several Daniels and they wrote after the fact because you know, there's so much wonderful prophecy in Daniel that they have to push up the dates of everything. And they just, they tell you the Bible is full of errors and they just tear apart. They did this with my husband. He didn't go to seminary, but he went to quote unquote Christian college and they just tore the Bible to pieces. And so then these guys, you know, they think they have higher critical learning because they've gone and gotten... Uh, you know, taught by guys with PhDs behind their names, and that they know more than we common dumb sheep. And so here's an example of this, okay? This man has a church, as I 
told you, in, well, I didn't tell you that, but he has a church in Seven Lakes, which is West End. My address is West End, so this is close to home. And his church is, it is on there, his church is growing leaps and bounds, the, girl, the woman told me, which is, is bad news, okay? Because he has a column in this paper, and some man wrote in, or woman, I don't know who wrote the question in, but here's the question that was asked to him. And you can look along with me. And, and this person is quoting the words of Jesus from John fourteen six. The question is, no one comes to the Father except through me. We know Jesus said that. That's the end of when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So here's this guy's question. I can't believe that the Jesus I accept as the hope for all humanity would even, en- even entertain such a thought that he's the only way. Okay? The Jesus he knows wouldn't even entertain that idea. And he says, what are your thoughts on the matter? And here is this reverend's response. I want to attempt an answer to your question without wading too deep into the waters of New Testament scholarship and theology. You know, there's where, you know, I have to make it simple for you folks, you know, because... I've, I've had all the deeper learning, so, but I can't quite you know, relate that to you, so I won't wade into all of that, but I'll give you an answer that might be satisfactory. Here's what he says. Um, Although some critical thinking is necessary to give you a satisfactory answer. The passage you quote from, the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, is a favorite proof text for those Christians who seem to find it necessary to exclude most people from God's love in order to enhance their membership in the club of the chosen ones. Since they have found God through a particular interpretation of scriptures that they call the plan of salvation, they cannot imagine, much less accept, that there are ways to experience God other than their own. This man is saying, that you and I think we're exclusive members of, you know, this little club, the chosen ones, and that we have interpreted the scripture and, and, and say that there's this plan of salvation so that only you and I, you know, can get in, us and no one else. And, and he thinks, and this is, this is this kind of mindset, okay, and it's prevalent it's everywhere. The mindset is that he is the loving one, okay? He's the loving one because you'll see as we get to the end, he's embracing everybody. Everybody's okay. Everybody's going to get in heaven. And so that's loving. And we're the mean, hateful ones because we say, you know, uh, that the way is narrow. Jesus is the only way. But let me ask you, who are the real loving ones? Him or us? It is those who tell the truth. He is on the broad road to destruction and taking many down with him. He is not telling people the truth. He is a minister of Satan. He is a heretic. It gets worse. Wait till we finish. Um, But is loving to tell people the truth because only the truth will set them free. Only the truth will get them into eternity. It's not because if I had my way, I sure, yeah, I'd let everybody in too, wouldn't you? Except maybe Hitler and a few like that. But, but that's not the truth. People need to hear the truth. God devised one way. There was only one ark from safety, the judgment of the whole world, right? There was one, only one way to escape the bite of the serpents in the wilderness, and that was to look upon that brass ser- serpent lifted up on a cross. There's only one way to escape the angel of death at, at the Passover, and that was to put the blood of the lamb on the doors. That's God's way. Okay? He goes on, and he says... Um, The Gospel of John was written during the last decade of the first century, about 60 years or more after Jesus' death, which is true. That's true. This Gospel, unlike the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, presents the Jesus story through long narratives and extensive conversation between Jesus, his disciples, and others. Now listen to this next sentence. It is unlikely that the exact words Jesus uttered while he was alive were actually recorded in the memory of the author or his sources. What does that tell you right there? He does not believe in the inspired word of God. Throw out 1 Timothy 3.16 or 2 Timothy, whichever, you know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that a man of, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good. Throw that out. It's not inspired. 
He's the man who's going to tell us which parts we can believe, which parts we can't believe. He goes on, he says, um, where did I leave off? The evangelists, including John, not infrequently ascribed Christian words to Jesus. They made him talk like a Christian. I cannot, but when I read that, I could not believe that. They put Christian words into Jesus' mouth. Did you get that? They made him talk like a Christian. Where did these Christians come from? I thought Christians came from Jesus. I didn't know that, you know, he came after the Christians, did you? And they put words in his mouth? And it says here, when in fact he was a Jewish rabbi that Christians saw as their savior and hero, giving him names, such as Christ and Son of God. He didn't have those names. It was the Christians who gave him those names. And then look at this. They creatively invented speeches for Jesus and wrote them in Greek, even though Jesus' native tongue was most likely Aramaic. I mean, Jesus didn't know how to speak Greek, did he? Or Hebrew. And they, they wrote the speeches. Maybe he even had teleprompters that they wrote for him. In addition, John was part of a Christian community that apparently was in continuous conflict with the leaders of Judaism in the same community. It may have been important for these particular Christians to see Jesus as the only way to God and to discredit Judaism. I mean, do they forget that John (laughs) was Jewish and he was raised in Judaism? It may have been important for them to see the only way to God uh, and to discredit Judaism and pagan rogue. Uh, Roman paganism as an acceptable way to God. Consequently, the Gospel of John is seen by many as being somewhat anti-Semitic. Have you ever read the Gospel of John and thought, wow, this book is against the Jews? John is so anti-Semitic. Go figure. John was Jewish. Why would he be anti-Semitic? His Savior was Jewish. It's It's just so crazy. But you have to go to a school of higher learning to get this smart, you know? This does not mean that Christians cannot learn a great deal about Jesus from John. Oh, thank you. This gospel happens to be my favorite. Because I'm anti-Semitic. He should have put that in there. <laughs> I don't know. It, doesn't, it does mean that one cannot pull one or two sentences out of context and be absolutely sure that these are the words of Jesus rather than words that were put into the mouth of Jesus by the particular representing and the author representing a particular Christian perspective. So here he is again. You know, we can't, we can't take John 14, 6 out of context. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Can't take that out of context. Well, if, you know, if you even put it in the context, it still means the same thing. It's very clear. Oh, my. And then he says, I, he agrees with the man who wrote the question. I agree with you that the Jesus through whom I found the way to God and the Jesus you see as the hope for all humanity would not exclude Jews or Muslims, Buddhists, or Hindus who have found their way to God and seek to lead a life of love and justice. And then this last one just kills me. My salvation as a Christian does not depend on the damnation of others. Oh, mine does. My salvation depends on the damnation of the rest of the world because they're damned, I get to go to heaven. That's just, you know what I want you to do? In addition to the last six questions in your book is it or is it the first six? First six in your books on lesson 173 I want you to write me how you would have responded to that question and secondly how would you if you're going to write into this minister how would you respond to him and what he said not hatefully but scripturally okay and and that's what I'm going to do I am going to yeah, he's got, you could email him directly, but I want to collect from all three Bible studies, and I'm going to send them in to the paper and to the man. So spend a little time on that, okay? We need, things are getting worse and worse. This, I mean, there's been other articles in our local paper that are just, you know, about this marriage amendment thing, and, and people are, are tearing down the inspiration of the scripture. And we need, it's time, we need to start standing up and speaking out. It isn't going to get any better. And people like this, you know, a lot, of, a lot of us just keep quiet. We don't do anything. We need to end that. We need to start speaking out. So that's extra homework.
And that took me so long, I'll never get through my lesson. Well, the Lord's final testimony to the world before the cross concerned the sovereignty of his heavenly father. His last words, a testimony about his father's sovereignty. He told Pilate that he could do absolutely nothing at all to him without the sovereign permission of God from above. And those words that were spoken so authoritatively and so fearlessly from a man who had just been subjected to the halfway death of the scourging and who was facing death by way of crucifixion if he didn't do or say something in his own defense made an immense impression, further impression on Pilate. Amazingly, even the Lord's words about Pilate's sin had a profound effect upon the governor. You know, even though Pilate had just very arrogantly lectured Jesus about him not having answered his other question when he asked him, you know, whence art thou? Where are you from? And he didn't, Jesus remained silent. And remember Pilate so proudly and arrogantly speaketh thou not unto me? Don't you know I have the power to uh, release you or, or to crucify you? He answered that question very arrogantly. But now, after Jesus had spoken about he could have no power except it came from above and that his sin was great, it just wasn't the greatest. After that, Pilate didn't say anything sarcastic in response or he didn't say anything in mockery or in anger or cynicism. That's interesting. That is very interesting that he did not respond. His conscience was already troubling him, right? We've talked about that many times. Um, but now there was this thought, this further thought of some kind of divine judgment for his injustice. You know, if Jesus was the son of the Hebrew God, as the Jews accused him, and he had just said there, you know, that Pilate's power came from above and that he had sin and it was great sin, if there was going to be some kind of divine judgment on him, that really makes him squirm. So not only did Pilate remain silent here, rather than retort back with some kind of a sarcastic uh, remark, or even allow one of the soldiers standing there to slap the Lord in the face, like Annas had allowed, instead of doing that, uh, he left the praetorium. He goes out of the praetorium, this is the last time he does it, the fourth time, to again face the crowd and to seek the release of Jesus with an even more intensified manner than, than before. He's tried many ways to get out of this, hasn't he? But now he really, really tries. He, pu he puts everything he has into it. So as we continue our look at Satan's hour of darkness, we're going to look today just at the first part of your outline, the demand of the crowd, which we find in, in John 19, verses 12 to 15. So look with me at those verses. Right after Jesus said in verse 11, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Then it says in verse 12, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, and this is just terrible, we have no king but Caesar. So for the fourth and final time, Pilate steps out of the judgment hall to address the mob. And verse 12 tells us that thenceforth he sought to release Jesus. And the verb sought is given in the Greek in perfect tense, which means it was a continuous effort. We have no idea what those efforts were, what Pilate said to the Jews at this time in order to persuade them to let him release Jesus, of course, he could have just done that, right? He was the governor, but he's trying to persuade them. We don't know what he said or who he might have consulted with, maybe some other Roman officials he consulted with and how he could handle this sticky situation. Or maybe, maybe he made some very serious promises to the Jews, you know, the chief priests in particular, regarding some things that they had wanted to get from him for a long time. Maybe he said, I'll promise you I'll do this and that and all these things you've wanted. We don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us what his attempts consisted of. But this final effort was something new. 
It was something that was inspired by his last private meeting with Jesus. And what was the outcome of this last very zealous effort? Well, all you have to do is look at the next three words and you have your answers. Your answer. It says what? But the Jews. That tells you right there what's going to happen. No matter what Pilate could say or do or promise, the Jewish leaders under Caiaphas had made up their minds, hadn't they? Their minds were made up. It was to be Christ crucified and nothing less. Nothing less or nothing different. Even if he said, you just take him and you can stone him to death. Just get out of here. Even if he said that, you know, to them, nothing would satisfy them except Christ and Christ crucified. Or I should say Christ crucified. (laughs) We preach nothing less than Christ and Christ crucified, do we? Well, Pilate's reluctance to kill the man that they hated more than any other person in the whole world. They hated Jesus more than they hated Caesar. That didn't go over very well with the Jews. They responded with loud cries, it tells us. It says they cried out. That's a single word in the Greek. And it's also a word which is an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is, don't you, Miss English teacher? It's a word that sounds like what it is, like snap, crackle, and pop. They all sound like what they are, don't they? Crackle. Well, this word in the Greek is an onomatopoeia, and it's a word that refers to the noisy, clamorous sound that is used of the, of the squawky cry of ravens and crows. I, have, I often get crows in our yard, and you know the sound of a crow? It's not very pleasant, is it? It's annoying. That's what they were doing. That's how it sounded in the ears of God. Like they were just like crows. It's an excellent word to describe the ravenous, obnoxious, loud, clamoring cry of this mob as they yelled out in their objection to Pilate's efforts to release Jesus. Do you know that screaming mobs never make pleasant sounds? They don't. What do they call these people that are starting all over again now? The um, the crowds. Oh, come on! Somebody help me. You know the yes, the occupied Wall Street crowd. Is that what the name is? They're starting up to, again today, May first. They don't make very many pleasant sounds, do they? Interestingly, demonic forces are symbolized in Scripture oftentimes as ravens and crows and other carnivorous birds of prey. And the Jews, which refers to the chief priests and the other leaders, now pull out their last and their best weapon. They've been saving this. You know, their six previous accusations against Jesus had not succeeded, had they? What were those? Let's have a quick review. They've accused Jesus of at least six recorded things in the scripture. Probably more, but there are six that are recorded. Right. First of all, that he was a malefactor, which is one who continuously does evil. Secondly, that he was perverting the nation. Third, that he was, you know, forbidding people to pay their taxes to Caesar. Fourth, that he claimed to be Christ a king. Fifth, that he had stirred up the people throughout Jewry, beginning at Galilee. And sixth, that he had made himself the son of God. Those hadn't worked. Uh, Pilate said, no, he's not. He's not guilty of any of those things. But they knew their man and they knew his Achilles heel, didn't they? And now they struck him where they knew he was the most vulnerable. Where was Pilate the most vulnerable? His relationship with Caesar, which because of his past pride and poor judgment in ruling the Jewish people was already on shaky ground. So with the clever cunning of Satan himself, the Jews insinuated to Pilate that if he did not consent to their wishes regarding Jesus, they would accuse him of treason. They said, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. And guess what? We're going to tattletale on you like we have before. Whosoever maketh himself a king, like Jesus, speaketh against Caesar. That was their trump card. This was their clinching argument. And once Pilate heard it, he knew that all his hopes to escape from this unhappy predicament were ended. Why is that? Because he drew the line, (laughs) he drew the line uh, with his own position. He would not forfeit his own position, not even to prevent the death of an innocent man. 
one he even admired. He valued his standing before Tiberius Caesar and the power he derived from him more than he valued his standing before Jesus and the God of heaven, who Jesus had told him, had the ultimate power. So what kind of depravity do we have on display here? What kind of depravity? Well, we have the absolute worst. This is the worst that you can ever imagine from mankind. Never has human nature made such a despicable exhibition of itself as it did here during Jesus' trials. On the one hand, you have the descendants of godly Abraham. Think of Abraham, father of the faith, who stepped out totally in faith, didn't even know where he was going, he just obeyed God. The descendants of Abraham, the most divinely favored of all people on the earth, who are to were to tell the whole rest of the world about Jehovah God and his promised Savior. And here they are clamoring like a bunch of calling crows for the crucifixion of their own long-awaited Messiah. It doesn't really get worse than that. And, on the other hand, there is a judge of one of the highest courts of Rome who is ignoring the strong message of his own conscience and he is trampling all over justice. It wasn't really Jesus who was on trial during these six trials. It was the rest of the world that was on trial. And guess what? The whole rest of the world was found guilty. Guilty. Pilate and his soldiers were found guilty of scourging and mocking an innocent man and condemning him to die. Herod and his man of war were found guilty of mocking the king of kings. The mob was guilty of mindlessly following their ungodly leaders into demanding the death of their own Messiah. And the Jewish religious leaders were found very guilty. They were the most guilty of all because they had given heed to Satan's bidding against tremendous privilege and light and viciously demanded the death of the only begotten Son of God. Never has sin been more corporately on display. Never. The Jews threatened Pilate. If he released a man who had claimed to be a rival king to Caesar, he then would be no friend of Caesar's. And he knew the implication behind that. He knew what they were saying. It was the fact that they would report right away to the emperor that Pilate not only refused to take action against this, you know, professing king, but he was even even seeking to release him. So they would report that right away. And Tiberius Caesar would hardly regard this as the action of one who was friendly to his throne. And there's another little piece of the puzzle that we've never talked about before. There's another piece of this whole picture. There, the man who had the most influence in getting Pilate his position as governor over Judea was a Roman named Sejanus. Well, right prior to the, these trials of Jesus, Sejanus had committed treason against Caesar. Now, Sejanus had been a one-time friend of Tiberius Caesar, but he had just committed treason and was put to death for it. So you can see that anyone who had been put into position by Sejanus would also be highly suspect, right? So all it would take for Tiberius is to have one little suspicion of Pilate's loyalty to him and his career would be fine. It would be over and very likely, possibly also his life. So this fills out the whole picture of why Pilate is walking on such eggshells here. You know, earlier the Jews had to choose between, the Jewish people, the crowd, had to choose between Christ or Barabbas. Now Pilate has to choose between Christ or Caesar. Or Caesar. If he chose to be on Christ's side, he would be reported as an enemy of Caesar. However, and you could put, you know, put the world in the place of Caesar, couldn't you? Uh, however, if he remained Caesar's friend, he would be of necessity an enemy of Christ. He had been trying all along to compromise. He had been trying to comply with the demands of wicked men externally, trying to appease the Jews, okay? And yet, at the same time, not offend the voice of God within him in his own conscience uh, internally, you know, thinking that he could serve two masters, trying to get away with doing both, wasn't he? But we know that's impossible. As Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve two masters. So what would Pilate do? Would he choose to listen to his God-given conscience and be a doer of the right? 
and a denier of self and possibly even become a friend of Jesus? Or would he choose to disobey his conscience and put aside righteous judgment, remain Caesar's friend, be a lover of self, a slave to the fear of men, and consequently become an eternal enemy of Christ? Which would he decide to do? Well, the answer is found in his next action. Verse 13. Pilate, therefore, when he heard that saying, what saying? Well, that veiled threat to him about not being Caesar's friend. When he heard that, he brought forth Jesus while he sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, or in Hebrew it's called Gabbatha. Gabbatha means in Hebrew an elevated place, you know, a, a ridge, a raised place. The judge's seat sat on an elevated place, just like in a courtroom today. The judge is usually higher than everybody else, right, in the courtroom. And they put the, the judge's seat, which in Greek, the judge's seat is called the bima. Sound familiar? They put the bima on the, on the, the pavement, which was elevated. So it's either called the pavement or Gabbatha, a raised place. Now, it has been excavated. They, the archaeologists have actually found that pavement. It's a 3,000 square foot mosaic laid tile floor it's beautiful and it's under what's called the ecce homo arch remember ecce homo in latin means behold the man and it's in fort antonio and that's one of the few places they say this jesus stood here here is where he was condemned well he brought jesus forth and he took his seat on the judge's chair there was no mistaking the significance of Pilate's action. In having the prisoner brought forth while he took his seat there in the judge's chair, he was indicating that he was ready to render the sentence. You know, he's already announced the verdict. Over and over and over again, he has announced the verdict, right? I find no fault in him at all. He's innocent, innocent, innocent. And now he's going to pronounce the sentence. Crucifixion. Crucify him. Does that make sense? He's innocent, but let's crucify him. Everyone present there, when they saw this action, they knew that Pilate had been defeated. He had tried to play politics with the whole situation, but all of that was over. Now the situation was playing with him. The words of the Jews got to the weakness of the judge. He would not jeopardize his position with Caesar. Remember, he had earlier asked, what is truth? Now we could say, in effect, he was saying, what is justice? I'm going to throw justice under the bus. And he does. And he, he throws justice under the bus in order to save his own skin. So, quick review of Pilate. So far, he has made himself the friend of Herod. Remember, they were at enmity with one another, but when he sent Jesus to him in that second trial, they became friends again. So he has made himself the friend of Herod. He has made himself the friend of Barabbas. And now he has made himself the friend of Caesar at the expense of being the friend of God. Not a very wise choice, a deadly choice, an eternally deadly choice. You think his friendship with Herod or even Barabbas or Caesar ever benefited him? No, not really. He got banished anyway. Do you know that a few short years later he got banished from his position anyway? None of those friendships meant anything. They sure don't make, mean anything today if he's in hell. I don't know. There's word about both ways. Some say he went out and committed suicide. Others say that he became a Christian like his wife. Who knows? We'll find out. In it. I hope he did. I hope he did become a Christian, but I don't know. Well, the world was about to judge its creator, and the Jews in specific were about to sacrifice their Passover lamb, their own Messiah. You know what hour it was? Besides being Satan's hour of darkness, it was man's hour. And in order to emphasize this fact, John, under divine inspiration, was led here by the Holy Spirit to use the Roman time system in which the hours of the day begin at midnight. Same one we use today. So that the first hour is 1 a.m., the second hour is 2 a.m., third hour is 3 a.m., get the picture? By the time John wrote, which was around 95 A.D., guess what? 
the Jewish people were no longer in their land. When was Israel destroyed? When was the temple destroyed in the city of Jerusalem? 70 AD under Titus Vespasian, right? So by the time John wrote his gospel, it's 25 years later, after they've been dispelled from their land. There is no temple anymore. The holy city of Jerusalem lays in ruins. It's been entirely destroyed. And the Jews are dispersed throughout the whole world. John wrote his gospel for the benefit of the entire world, specifically, for everybody. And therefore, he tells us, using Roman time, that it was somewhere between 6 in the morning and 7, which goes right along with your charts like we gave you last week in Chuck Swindoll's time chart, that it was now between 6 and 7 in the morning when Pilate sat on the judgment seat to make his final pronouncement concerning Jesus. And so John says it was about the sixth hour because it wasn't quite seven o'clock in the morning. And they considered the whole hour to be the sixth hour until and then it would begin the seventh hour. Okay, so it could have been 655 and it would still be the sixth hour. And so John tells us under divine inspiration, John 19, 14, and it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. It was the day the Jews celebrated the great feast of the Passover by preparing their Passover lambs. You know, that was the day they slaughtered the Passover lambs. It was one of the holiest days of the year for the Jewish people. But the representatives of the Gentile world, whose, uh, the representative singular pilot, whose weakness allowed him to be, nip, be, nip, be manipulated by the wickedness of the Jewish representatives of Israel was about to do the most unholy deed that has ever been committed. It's one of the holiest days of the year, and they're about to do the most unholy thing ever imaginable. Men were about to condemn the perfect Son of God, the true Passover lamb, to death. So, guess what? Of course it was the sixth hour! We wouldn't expect it to be anything else, would we? Six is the number of man. You know, it's interesting. Again, if you look at Chuck Swindoll's time schedule, the, the trials, the six trials of Jesus, six accusations of Jesus, took six hours to complete. About one or two to almost seven o'clock. Either way you figure it, it's about six hours for those six trials. It took man six hours to condemn his God. You know what the next six hours are going to do? From nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, the next six hours, God is going to save man. Fantastic, isn't it? This was man at his worst. It was the sixth hour. Now, I want to tell you that Bible critics, where's my little reverend guy? what I did with him, but Bible critics will say, oh, there are errors in the scripture because Mark says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. And here we're told that it was the sixth hour. That doesn't jive. You can't jive that, you know? Well, duh. You know, they're using different, there were different times. Actually, the Galileans started their day at sunset and, and they say the Judeans started their day at sunrise. And the Romans, we know, started their day at, at midnight. So they're just using different times. You know why? Because everything is divinely inspired for a purpose, like this sixth hour thing tells us it was man's hour. That's why. But if you don't look at the scriptures as being divinely inspired, you come up with your little interpretations and say it's a mistake instead of seeing God wrote it, so I need to understand what God is saying. There's always a purpose for what he does. All right, Jesus was again brought forth to stand before this crowd. The second time he's brought forth in his terrible, scourging condition. His horrendous appearance. I can't even imagine, and neither can you, the pain that must have racked his body from that second death, I mean that halfway death scourging of the Romans. I don't know, I really don't know how he could even stand or walk upright, you know, with even his, his maybe some of his organs exposed and just horrible. His facial features would be unrecognizable, you know, so bruised and beaten and covered with spit and sweat and blood and still has that crown of thorns on his head, and his hair would be matted from the dripping blood and the, and the other blood that had dried, and it was just matted. You know his eyes would be bloodshot, if you could even see his eyes, and sunken, because he hasn't had any sleep for like 48 hours, 
and he was up all night, you know, agonizing in prayer. He would just look gruesome, to say the least. Isaiah 52, 14, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, or was it last week? I lost track. But we, we learned that his face and his form were so marred that he didn't even look like a man. He, was, he, he looked like he was separated from, from humanity. And then there's Isaiah 53, 3, which tells us, this is from the Jewish perspective, they said, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. You know, he was so gruesome to look at, they hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Dr. John Phillips wrote this in his commentary. He said, said sin in all its ugliness met holiness in all of its beauty. You know, to the world, the crucified, bloody, beaten Jesus was ugly. They despised it. They esteemed him not. It was gruesome, awful to look at. But for those of us who love him and know him, that was the most beautiful sight we can imagine because he was doing that in our place. You know, a man, a woman condemns themselves when they judge a Rembrandt painting or a painting by Leonardo da Vinci or going to the Sistine Chapel and look up and say, eh, that's nothing. They're judging themselves. When, when you judge Beethoven or Shakespeare and say, eh, you know, that's not much. When you look at Jesus Christ and you don't see the beauty of his holiness, you're judging yourself. You're condemning yourself. Yeah, you know why these guys say the Jesus? I Because it's a different Jesus than the Jesus of the scripture. They have a different Jesus. These, these liberal preachers out there. It's not our Jesus. The problem is that sinful man is unable to recognize or appreciate the beauty of holiness. They mock those who live a separate lifestyle, those who want to be holy, don't they? The world does. Well, wanting to show his disdain for Caiaphas and Annas and all their self-righteous Jewish co-conspirators, Pilate does what? He points to Jesus in his pitiful state and uh, likely just as sarcastically as he could, he says, behold your king. He's not trying to mock Jesus. He's trying to mock the Jews. <laughs> this is your king. This is the king of the Jews. They had backed him into a corner and he hated it. But he, that didn't prevent him from sticking them, you know, with a sarcastic barb where he knew it would hurt. However, again, unknown to him, his words were not only true, because Jesus was the rightful Jewish king. If there had been a king in Israel, Jesus had every right to be that king from both his mother and his father. But they were also, Pilate's words were very scriptural. When he said, behold thy king, unknown to him, he was quoting scripture. Some 550 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had foretold of the Messiah's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And he told the Jewish people how they could recognize their Messiah when he came. How would he come? Low and riding upon the colt of an ass, right? That's how they could recognize him. Perhaps some of those astute Bible scholars in that mob, and there were, you know, the scribes and Pharisees and, and the chief priests, they, they knew their Old Testaments. They, they misinterpreted many of it, but they knew that, um, they knew about this prophecy. And when they heard Pilate's words, Behold thy king, I wonder if some of them thought of Zechariah 9.9. Now, we know that the enemies of the Lord would, would definitely have long ago checked out Jesus' ancestral record. There's no doubt about it, because everyone's records in those days were kept meticulously in the temple. It was very important to the Jews to know what tribe they came from and who they came from, etc. So all those records were in the temple, um, and they would have, that would have been the first thing they did is run there and see if he would qualify to be their Messiah and the rightful king to the throne of David. And you know how we know that they checked it out? It's an argument from silence. It's because they never brought up the subject of his lineage. They knew it would not work. And now they heard words that should remind them of Zechariah 9.9, how to recognize their Messiah king. And how could they not, at least some of them, remember that just a few days earlier, that was exactly how he had ridden into the holy city. Isn't it? Lowly. He had come into the city 
meek and lowly on the, the young, the unridden donkey. But they, the problem was that they didn't want a meek and lowly Messiah like the one that Pilate was pointing to in front of them. They didn't want a lamb of a man who rode a donkey for their king. That's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a roaring lion type of a king who rode into their presence on a glistening white stallion and put down all of their enemies at once. That's the kind of king they wanted. You see, they wanted um, a political savior for their earthly bodies. They weren't looking for a spiritual savior for their souls. So the crowd looked from the king they rejected standing there in a majesty all of his own that they couldn't even begin to appreciate. They looked from him to the sneering governor that they detested, and once again, prodded by their leaders, they raised their fierce and relentless cry and said, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. So guess what? The Jews have now voiced their opposition to Jesus as the Son of Man. Remember when Jesus, I mean, Pilate had said, Behold the man? They have rejected, they, after he said, behold the man, they cried out, crucify, crucify. So they had rejected Jesus as the son of man. They have rejected him as the son of God. Look at John nineteen seven, And now they re- reject him as the son of David, the greater son of David, the Messiah King. After Pilate said, behold your king, they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. You know what they should have done? They should have listened to their last Old Testament prophet when he had introduced their Messiah to the nation and had said, Behold, the Lamb. If they had listened to John the Baptist three years earlier, they would not still to this day be reaping the consequences of having rejected and killed Jesus. You know, if you go through the book of John, it's interesting. You could do a sermon on, Behold, the Lamb. Behold the man, behold the son of God, behold your king. There's a real good sermon in that, but we don't have time. And we're out of time. And then Pilate gave the mob one final opportunity to relent of their heartless choice by crucify, of crucifying their king. He said, shall I crucify your king? He's still mocking them by referring to Jesus as their king. You know, he knows by now that they hate the implication of that. And maybe the crowd would have had a last-minute change of heart. You know, shall I really crucify this man who's already undergone so? Maybe they would have changed their minds. I doubt it. But the chief priests didn't give them a chance because it's the chief priests who immediately respond by these shocking words. They say, we have no king but Caesar. Talk about blasphemy. They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy, and they're saying we have no king but Caesar. You know, in other words, God isn't our sovereign. Caesar is our sovereign. And, and we know, of course, that they're saying whatever it takes to get Jesus crucified, right? They don't really mean this, do they? They don't mean it. And we know they don't mean it because for some 40 years later, or less than 40 years, they did rebel in an all-out fierce war, battle, against Rome to rid themselves of Caesar. They're just saying here what's ever expedient to get what they want. But that doesn't matter. Uh, because God took them at their word here. He took them at their word. They chose Caesar over his son. Unfortunately, the tragic choice of Israel's leaders was really Jewish history repeating itself. Do you remember in the days of Samuel the prophet? If you have to go, I know we're going to run over a little bit. But back in the days of Samuel, they um, complained to him because they wanted a king like all the other nations. You know, they looked and they said... Oh, they have a king, they've got an emperor, they've got a Caesar, we want one too. They weren't content with just God, were they? And so God said to Samuel, he said, well, tell the people, you know, hearken, he, he told, said, hearken unto the voice of the people, listen to the people, give them what they want, and um, because it's not you, Samuel, that they're rejecting, he said, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. You know what they did, the Jewish people did? In the Old Testament, They rejected God the Father as their king. He was sufficient. He would have just been the the most benevolent king they could ever have. Way better than what the other countries, their kings, right? The Old Testament, they rejected God the Father as their king. In the days of Christ, they rejected God the Son as their king. 
In the church age in which we live, they are forever rejecting God the Holy Spirit and his convincing, convicting work of pointing to Christ as the king. And in the days of the tribulation, they're going to choose a false king to reign over them. All that, all that suffering before they finally recognize their true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes at his second, at his second coming. Well, we are out of time. I hate to do this to you, but I guess there was so much, two pages left, <laughs> so much more I wanted to say, but I got off on my high horse about that article, didn't I? But please do, please do take a little time this week and respond to that because I do want to send all those in. Maybe some of them will be printed in the paper there, I hope. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time that we've had together. We, we just thank you for Jesus Christ again and again and again every day. We love him and we thank you for the beauty of his majesty. Even as he stood there in that pathetic, gruesome condition, he was beautiful to us. Lord, we know Pilate wanted to remain neutral when it came to Jesus Christ, but no man can be neutral concerning the Lord of glory. He is the only ultimate king of the universe, and he is now and forever the Son of God. Whether we acknowledge or refuse to acknowledge him, it does not change the truth. And Jesus is before each and every one of us, even today, as he was before Pilate. When Pilate asked, Art thou king? We can ask the same question, and he'll respond the same way. Thou hast said. We have to face that We cannot be neutral. We cannot walk the fence. We will bow before him one day or another. So if there is someone here who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the Christ of the scripture, the God-inspired scripture, I pray she would do that rather than in the terror of the day of judgment. Let no woman here ever face you at the great white throne judgment. We pray in your name. Amen.